All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Nahum, the little book of Nahum, and we'll be finishing up with Nahum tonight, and then we'll go to uh, Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a really good book, and and uh, then we'll get uh, into some really good prophecies as we finish up in, in the Minor Prophets, so... Uh, Anyway, we're in Nahum, and we're in chapter number two tonight. Nahum, chapter number two. If you remember in chapter number one, uh, Nahum pronounced the fact uh, that uh, Nineveh was about to be judged. He uh, pronounced the burden of the Lord upon Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of, of uh, Assyria. And uh, if you remember the book of Jonah, when we were in the book of Jonah, Jonah had preached uh, a burden of judgment to the people of Nineveh way back uh, decades before Nahum came on the scene. And the Ninevites repented and they were spared. But it wasn't a true revival like a lot of revivals. It didn't last. And, and uh, so they went back to their wicked ways and now God is going to judge them, and there's, the judgment is set, and there's no turning back. Uh, God is going to tell them that you're about to be destroyed. And so uh, uh, they had one of the reasons that this book is in there, we'll talk about another reason a little bit later, is the fact that the Assyrians and the Ninevites were the ones who had taken the northern kingdom into captivity, and they were a brutal empire. As I said last week, they, they were by, and the historians say they're one of the most brutal empires uh, that's ever existed on this earth. Maybe next to the empire of the Antichrist, uh, it, was, it was about as bad as it can get. And so uh, they had destroyed Israel, and uh, God had used the Ninevites as a rod of discipline against Israel, but that didn't excuse their behavior. The fact that they were wicked and brutal uh, God kept a record of that, and now he's going to judge the nation. And so he's going to describe that judgment beginning in verse number one, and he's going to go back to telling us why they're being judged. So, so look at verse number one of chapter number two. It says, he who scatters, and Nahum, of course, is speaking of the Lord, the one who scatters, has come up before your face. Now, that's pretty scary thought there to have be face to face with the Lord and the Lord is pronouncing uh, judgment to be face to face with an angry God. And so just like uh, Hosea said, prepare to meet your maker and, and uh, that's the position they were in. And so uh, the Lord says, hey, he almost dares them. He says, prepare for this judgment. He says, man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, Fortify your power mightily, but it's not going to do you any good. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. In other words, you've emptied Israel out of her land. Uh, you've ruined the nation uh, and uh, you're going to be destroyed. But one day Israel will be restored. Over and over again in these prophecies, we see the fact that the judgment of Israel wasn't final. They didn't go off the pages of history 
to be a nation no more. They were scattered throughout the land. And then in our lifetime, they've been gathered back into that land. Uh, and they're, they're in Israel now. So, so uh, God restored them a couple of times. And, and now they're there in that land now. He says, the shields of the, the mighty man are red. The valiant man are, are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of, the, of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. Now, a couple of interpretations here. Assyria, one of their main colors was red, so some people believe that he's talking about the, the shields and the, the, uh, the uniforms of the men, but I don't think so. I think what I hear he's talking about the fact that their shields are going to have blood on them. They're going to be bloody because they're going to come up against an army that's going to defeat them, and, and they're going to... You know, they're going to die by the sword. And he says in verse number four, the Medes and the Babylonian, Babylonian chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad uh, roads. They sing like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They, they stumble in their walk. They make, haste. they make haste to her walls and the defense is prepared. But the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. And so he's speaking of the fact that you can prepare for this judgment that's coming, but, but it's not going to do you any good. The palace is going to be dissolved. And how is it going to be dissolved? The gates of the rivers are going to be opened. The Greek historian Diodorus Siculus uh, wrote about this battle between the Assyrians and the Medes and the Persians. And what happened when the Medes and the Persians, uh, when the Medes and the Babylonians came against the Assyrians, then I said Persians a while ago, the Assyrians, then the, uh, at that particular time, the river was at, the, the Tigris River was at flood stage. I wonder who put the river at flood stage. That was the Lord. And so they had guards at the floodgates but they were guarding the city more than they were guarding the floodgates. And so what the, what the Babylonians and the Medes did, they came and took the, captured the floodgates and then opened the floodgates up. And, the, and, and you put that on top of the, the, the fact that the river was at flood stage and they, a great wall of water came into the city. It knocked down a, the, the eastern wall and then it came in and flooded the palace and brought the palace down. And so the wall was wide open and the Babylonians and the, the Medes poured in and, and defeated the Assyrians. Then he says in verse number seven, it is decreed. You know, they thought their city was impenetrable. In their minds, nothing could, no army could uh, invade their city, but they were deceived. She, and, and so the nation will be led away captive. She shall be brought up and her maidservants shall lead her lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. And they're going to wail like doves. In verse number eight, Nineveh of all was like a pool of water. And so Nineveh is going to be flooded and it's going to be just like a, like a lake from the waters of the Tigris. And now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry. The, the generals and the captains cry to their soldiers, but, but no one turns back. Everybody's running for their life. And then in verse number uh, uh, nine, we see that uh, when, they, when the soldiers fled, they left the city pretty much to the Medes and Babylonians to plunder. And so they're going to plunder the city. And so he cries out, take, 
spoil of silver. Take the spoil of gold. There is no end of the treasure uh, or of every of, of our wealth of every desirable prize. And then once the city is ransacked, you get a picture of it in verse number 11. She is empty. She is desolate and, and waste. The heart of the, the uh, he's talking about the Assyrian here, the heart of the Assyrian melts and their knees shake. Much pain is in every side and all of their faces are drained of color. I mean, they're pale and, and because they're, they're fearing what's about to happen to them. They never thought this would happen. Where is the dwelling of the lions? Now, the, the Assyrians were a brutal people. They were like lions. Now, some people say that their, their mascot or their, uh, their symbol of their nation was a lion, but, but I'm not sure that's true. But uh, there are some artifacts that show lions in some of their culture, but that, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily true that that was their symbol. But what he's saying right here is those soldiers, those brutal Assyrian soldiers were like lions and they ate up their enemies. And so now they're going to, what you sow is what you reap. They're going to be devoured by a greater lion. And that's the picture he's painting here. So he says uh, in verse number 11, where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked the lioness and the lion's cub and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for the cubs killed for his lioness lionesses and and so uh he says behold in verse number 13 i am against you says the lord of hosts the lord sabiot the lord of the armies of god and i will burn your chariots and smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions those great soldiers you're relying on uh they're going to go down and I will cut off your prey from the earth. And no longer will you be able to feed on the people of this earth or the nations of this earth. And the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. Judgment is coming and it's total and it's final. All right, now let's go to chapter number three. And so what he's done so far, he's described their judgment. And now he's going to tell them why they're being judged as we come to chapter three and listen to what he says in verse number one, he says, woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies. It is full of robbery and its victims never, its victim never departs. And so, uh, what he's saying there, it's a, you know, it's, it's not only did they spill the blood of other nations, violence has filled their streets. Uh, their, their society is full of liars and lies. They cheat each other and they rob from each other. And they have a seemingly, seemingly endless number of victims. Their, their victims never cease. They never depart. But they're about to become the victims. And uh, they're, so they're going to hear in their midst, listen in verse number two, the noise of their enemies, uh, the noise of the whip, which is coming from the Babylonians and the Medes who were the ones who attacked them and the noise of their rattling wheels of their chariots of their galloping horses of their clattering chariots horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear there is a multitude of slain a great number of bodies countless corpses they stumble over the corpses so here's Nahum's getting a, a, a graphic picture of what's going to happen to the Ninevites and it's not pretty at all and so they're going to have this terrible judgment. And, and why are they having this judgment? 
because they are vile. Remember back in chapter number one, he says Assyria is vile. And, and uh, they, they're, they're beyond fixing. They're so evil that, that even God can't fix them because of, they've made choices and God doesn't violate their choices. But he says also because of the multitude of harlotries, harlotries of, of the seductive heart, the mistress of sorceries. Now, now the Assyrians were deep into the occult. They were deep into paganism. And so God is going to judge them for that. And, and not only did they participate in sorceries, they exported sorceries and the occult throughout the world and throughout their empire. And so uh, he, says, he, says, he says, because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sell nations through her harlotries and families through their, their, her sorceries. And therefore the Lord says, Behold, I am, verse number five, I am against you. Now that's a bad place to be when the Lord's against you, says the Lord of hosts. Again, Jehovah Saviot, the Lord of the armies of heaven. And so your armies can't defend yourself. And listen, look, look, look at what he, he describes their humiliation. I mean, here he labels them as a harlot. Uh, they've totally turned from the Lord. Uh, they're into sorcery. They're into paganism. And, and so there's this picture of a harlot. And listen to what he says. He, the Lord says, I will lift your skirts over your face. And I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I mean, there's no, no shame like being naked in public. And so they're going to be uh, shamed publicly amongst all the nations. They're going to be totally wiped out. And then he says, I will cast abominable filth upon you and make you vile. You're so vile already, but I'm going to make it worse. You're going to, the picture that, the last picture of the nation of Assyria is this picture of total defeat and humiliation. And so God is going to make them vile. I'm going to make you a spectacle for all the nations. And then it says, it, it, he says in verse number seven, it shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. And then who will bemoan her? Who cares about Nineveh? Where shall I seek comforters or mourners is what he's talking about there for you because there's no mourners. Nobody's going to mourn the fact that you've been destroyed. You're a brutal nation. You've gone throughout the world uh, uh, wreaking havoc on, havoc on other nations. And so uh, I'm, you, you, nobody's going to come to your aid and nobody's going to really care. In fact, people are going to shout for joy at the fact that you've been destroyed. You know, if the United States got destroyed tomorrow, you know how many nations would mourn the fact that we were gone? It, very few, if any. Very few, if any. And that's the picture that God's painting for them. You've, you, you, you've ruled the world, but everybody hates you. And the fact that you're going down, they're going to they're gonna rejoice. Verse number eight, are you better than no Amon or now nothing is, is the translation of that. Are you better than the place that's now called nothing? Now, most scholars believe because of the context of this, and you'll see in the next few verses, that he's referring to the ancient city of Thebes. 
that set on the Nile River. And to give you a picture of this, they sat on the Nile River and they were an impenetrable little empire. They weren't as big as the Assyrians, but they thought that they would never go down because the way they were situated, it was almost impossible to attack the city of Thebes because they were several hundred miles or a couple of hundred miles south of the Mediterranean Sea. And then they had deserts, deserts that no army could cross. And so the so the only, uh, that surrounded the city. So the only way that you could get to the city would be down the Nile River. And, and to, to mount an army big enough to take the city of Thebes, you would have to have a, lots of ships and, and uh, uh, you, would, you would have to come down from the Mediterranean Sea. So, so logically, where do you think they had all of their fortresses? Up there by the Mediterranean Sea. And so that's where they tried to, you know, that's where the, the, their first line of defense was that area up there. And it was very hard to penetrate that, but that's what the Assyrians did. The Assyrians came down and, and uh, this, this impenetrable city was penetrated by the Assyrians. And, and uh, now God asks the question, you, you attacked the city of Thebes, you defeated the th- city of Thebes, are you any better than they were? And then he describes that situation that was situated on the river. He's talking about the Nile River that had the waters around her, that had the Mediterranean Sea, whose, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea. And so uh, there was no access to that city, but you got to her. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it, was, it, it seemed to be boundless. Put, put and Lubum were your helpers, and so they had these strong armies as allies. And so everybody thought that city was invincible, but the Assyrians conquered that city. And so God says, are you better than, than Noaman, than that, the city that's now nothing? Yet she was carried away, verse number 10, by you. She, was, well, she went into captivity. You took her into captivity. Your young children, you also dashed to pieces as the head of every, at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable man, and all her great men were bound in chains. And, and so you also will be drunk the same way they were drunk. In the city of Thebes, they ate and drank and partied like there was no tomorrow because they felt like they were perfectly safe. And what the Lord's saying, you're, gonna, you're, you're drunk like that yourselves. You think that your city is impenetrable, but there's an enemy coming that's going to bring you down. And so he says in verse number 12, all of your strongholds are all your strongholds, all those fortresses that you think protect the city, they're like fig trees with ripened figs. If they're shaken, if the branch is shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. That's a vivid picture of how weak they really were when they thought they were really strong. Uh, we, we've got a fig tree over in, in our house in Sunset, and well, we used to have it. I cut it down because it quit bearing figs. That's what you're supposed to do when a fig tree doesn't bear figs anymore. Or they got so high the birds were the only one getting the figs. But, but uh, when that fig tree was in its heyday, it would produce those honey figs and the branches would just be full. And all you had to do was just touch the branch and the figs would fall. I mean, they weren't attached uh, with any kind of strength to that branch. And that's what he's saying here, that they're like ripened figs. You just touch them. You guys aren't near as strong as you think you are. And uh, your strongholds are going to fall. Then he says in verse number 13, Surely your people, now watch this, Surely your 
armies in your midst are women. They're a bunch of sissies. That's really what God's saying. I don't know if they had women and homosexuals in their army like we do, but uh, Babylon, Babylon and the Medes were a determined army, and they were a strong army, full of valiant men. And so Assyria had had it at ease for a while, and they hadn't taken care of their military, and now he's saying your military is, is your people and your midst are like women. And so he says, draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Actually, that water was going to be turned against them. But fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. I mean, do anything you can to protect yourself. But it's not going to do you any good. They are, there the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. I will eat you up like a locust. Make my, yourself many like a locust. Make, get as many men as you want. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts, but uh, a bigger army than you is coming after you. A bigger, a bigger God than you are is coming after you. Then verse number 16, you have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of the heaven. Does that sound familiar? I mean, you, you're the greatest, most prosperous economy in the world, and you're still going to go down. The enemy I'm sending you will bring you and your economy down. Your commanders are like swarming locusts. You got generals everywhere. You got captains everywhere. You got colonels everywhere. And, but they're like great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges on the cold day. And when the sun rises, they go away. So when the enemy comes, these generals are going to be defeated. They're going to be no more. I mean, you can't, you, your generals can't save you in the day of judgment. They're going to be like those grasshoppers. They're going to be gone. Your shepherds or your princes, princes slumber. They're going, to, they're going to be as dead. O king of Assyria, your nobles rest in the dust. They're dead. Your people are scattered on the mountains. Many, most of them are dead. And no one goes to gather them. Your, your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. And all who hear the news of you, they're not going to mourn for you. They're going to clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? You've, you've spread your evil and your violence throughout the world. And people are going to be glad that you're gone. There's going to be joy on, in Israel and joy uh, on this earth because you're gone. And then the book ends. The book stops. No hope for Nineveh whatsoever. No one day in the millennium I'll restore this great empire. No, none of this. I mean, it is, it ends with a pretty, pretty uh, terrible picture for the Ninevites and the Assyrians. I mean, your wound is so severe it won't be healed. And people will be clapping at the fact that you're gone. So I got to ask the question, why did God put the little book of Nahum in these 66 books of the Bible? Now, the first chapter, I see some things in there that are really really applicable to, to uh, 
how God deals with nations. And I, I, in, but you've already seen that in chapter number one. And why he put chapter two and three in there? It's a pretty, pretty bleak picture of a nation that's gone off the pages of history. They're gone forever. So who cares? I mean, who cares? Well, I think I know the reason why. I'm not pretending to be God, but I, I, I believe God has a purpose for all 66 books of this Bible. And so I'm always going to ask, well, what is God's purpose in any of these books? I think if you can get to a book and you can kind of fill out God's purpose, then it helps you to interpret the book. It helps you to find meaning in the book. And so you always want to you know, look for the sits and labum, as, as the uh, homileticians call it, the situation in life that, that's going on. Why would God put this book in the Bible? Well, I think one reason would be to encourage the Israelites that, hey, these people that did, use so, did so wickedly towards you, they're going to be judged. Every nation is going to be judged that does wickedly towards Israel. And so there's that message there. But I think there's a message for us too. And he puts this book, if you, if you look at the minor prophets, most of the minor prophets are about who being judged. They're about Israel being judged by uh, Gentile nations. And so here in this book and in the book of Obadiah, there's only two books, you see the judgment upon Gentile nations. And so I think what God is doing in putting this little book here, he's saying to us that I'm concerned about all the nations. And sooner or later, not only will I judge the apple of my eye, I will judge every nation that turns against me and becomes my enemy and bathes itself in wickedness. I'm going to judge that nation. And, and I think that's the message here that, hey, we're looking at this. Man, the Israelites got it tough. Well, they're going to have it really tough. They're going to, have it, you know, they're going to judge the northern kingdom. They're going to judge the southern kingdom. And then God turns around and he stops all of that and he says, look, I'm going to judge every nation, Gentile or Jewish. I'm going to judge that nation. And so that's why I believe this book is in here. When a nation becomes vile, when it becomes like rotten fruit, that's one of the metaphors you see in the Bible for Israel, when it becomes like rotten fruit, overripe fruit, we'll see in the book of Zechariah. When it, comes like over, when it becomes overripe fruit, there's no hope for that nation. And you look at the, looking back here at Nahum, look at how he describes the, or, or, he, or how he, or the reason he talks about why God is judging this nation is because of their, what? Their violence in their streets. The fact they're liars. The city, that you can't find the truth anywhere in the nation. You can't find it in the media. You can't find it in their politics. You can't find it uh, amongst the individuals of the nation. You can't find it in business. You can't find truth anywhere. When a nation becomes like that, it, is, it, is, it has become vile. It has become like rotten fruit. Uh, robberies. I mean, when people are cheating each other, when you can't, uh, when it's hard to deal in business because people lie and people cheat, when it's hard to deal in church because people lie and people cheat, when it's hard to deal with in relationships with friends and family because People lie and cheat. That nation's becoming vile. When, when a nation is a violent nation, when a nation, uh, 
when the streets aren't safe anymore, uh, when, it, when, when you gotta, you know, you have to have locks on every door and, and lock your cars. And of course he wasn't talking about cars back here, but, but when, when it, because you're afraid of, you know, you're afraid of violence. And then when peoples and nations commit violence against each other and, and, and violence is rampant, then rampant, then, then, uh, a nation has become vile. So you look at all these things and you look at how, the, you know, why he, and why he judges nations and you think, well, you know, we're pretty much, we pretty much become vile in the sense that it's, it's hard to find the truth. You're not going to find the truth watching the news. You're not going to find the truth listening to many politicians. You're not going to, you're, 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 there's violence in the streets. There's, there's uh, robberies and cheating and business. I mean, all of these things that he, uh, condemned the, the uh, Assyrians for, he could condemn us for. And then you add to that, I mean, you would think maybe we're not so involved in the occult, but I, I think as a nation, the United States of America is probably just about as involved in the occult. I'm talking about outside the church as any other nation in the history of the world. And so you got to look at this, and that's why God has this here, to, to show why he judges nations and how he judges nations and how does he judge nations. He wipes them out. He totally wipes them out. And then you got to ask the question, I mean, whatever nation you're a citizen of, you got to ask the question, where's my nation fit into this picture? And if you ask that about the United States, we're very close to being a vile nation. I don't think we're quite as bad as the Assyrians were. There's some really good people in the United States of America. There's an element of, of patriotic good people. I say good, good in the sense that they, they lead fairly moral lives and, and they're not violent people and they're not liars and they're not robbers and thieves. And so, so we still can deal in business to some degree with trust. We still can to some degree go to bed at night and not lock our doors. Well, we won't, I won't go that far, but... But uh, we're not, I don't think we're quite there yet. But the, at the rate we're heading down that road of wickedness, we're going to be there very, very soon unless we turn around. Unless, unless this nation turns around, then, then this nation will be judged. And that's the message here. That's the message of Nahum right in the midst of all these judgments of Israel that, hey, you can be judged too. And God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The God of the Old Testament uh, is the same as the God of the New Testament. And, and uh, so what do we do? What do we do? Well, we take heart in the fact that we're the children of God. We take heart in the fact that we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be preserved, to be preserved by him, uh, prepared by him for glory. And God's going to take care of his own, and he's always known how to take care of his own. I don't know if he had any people in, in Assyria when they destroyed that nation, but if he did, he would have taken care of them. Uh, and, and he's always been able to do that when he judges a nation. So, so he knows how to protect his own people. So we really have nothing to fear. Uh, and I don't, I, I, I don't think there's any hope 
of saving this nation in the political arena or through through a social programs or anything. The only hope for this nation is, is that there's a revival and that the gospel goes out to a lot of people and, and a lot of people turn around and repent and, and come to the Lord. And, and that's our only hope as a nation. But we have a great hope. And so we have nothing to fear. And, and uh, we're going to see that hope as we uh, carry on in these uh, minor prophets uh, uh, beginning with Habakkuk. Nahum's a pretty bleak, dark book. But again, it does have a message left. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you that for the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that, Lord, there's no condemnation, there's no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we know that, that uh, uh, you're, you're going to protect us and preserve us no matter what happens to the United States of America. But, Lord, we love this country, and, and we... We know there's a remnant in this country, and Lord, I just ask you to grow that remnant and that, uh, Lord, you use us to be part of that process that, Lord, if there is a revival, that, that uh, Lord, we will be uh, part of that harvest, Lord. And so we just ask that, that uh, Lord, you help this nation. It begins with, with each city. So we pray for the city of Lafayette and just ask for you to, to show mercy on us, Lord. If, if, if any of us got what we deserve, we would be judged. We'd be wiped out just like the Assyrians. And, Lord, you've shown us grace, and we ask that you show that grace to Lafayette and to the surrounding cities here, to Louisiana, Lord, and to the United States of America. We just ask that, that you uh, are merciful and give us time, Lord, to repent. Help this nation, Lord. Help us. Help our president. Uh, it's, uh, people lie and cheat and, and Lord, nobody speaks the truth anymore. And so we just ask for you to, to, to remove those liars and to, to help the politicians that want to serve you and want to uh, serve, uh, promote righteousness, Lord. We just ask for, for righteousness to rule our land. We know it's not going to rule ever totally until Jesus Christ rules this earth. But in the meantime, Lord, again, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace. We ask for your power of your spirit on our nation and our city. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.